and open your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 21. 1 Kings chapter 21. We're continuing uh, looking at uh, the book of 1 Kings, and we're with an awesome king named, oh, terrible, but awesome character, king named Ahab, and his wife Jezebel. And so while you're turning there, if you don't know where it's at, just go to the table of contents, it'll tell you where to get to 1 Kings 21, the chapter, the big number on the page. Uh, so I'm a fan of the Lord of the Rings and the Lord of the Rings universe, Middle Earth, the universe, uh, the Hobbit, all those kind of things. And I'm I'm a fan of Peter Jackson's adaptations of them. I'm gonna be honest. Uh, the book is so. Uh, I think the movies are great, and uh, so like they, they really expand. Like if you read the book, and you get to Helm's Deep. It's only like three pages, like this major battle. Three pages in like the original Tolkien's version, but on the movie, it's like this is awesome. It's like. Part, a huge part of the anyways. So, but there's a there's a couple characters in the the, the series of the Hobbit Lord of the Rings, uh, and one of them's name is Gollum or Smeagol, as he used to be called. And he had a cousin and also best friend named Deagle, Smeagol and Deagle, and they were kind of three hobbits. And they were out fishing one day uh, for Smeagol's birthday. Uh, so they're on this boat on this river fishing, and uh, Deagle uh, was pulled into the river by a big fish. And so while he's in this river, he goes down to the bottom, and while he's down there, he sees this ring, this gold ring, half buried in the sand, and he picks this thing up. And he gets it up out of the water, and he's like enamored with this ring. He's just staring at it. And he's actually, well, this, so this ring, backstory, ends up being the one ring that Sauron created, the one ring to rule them all, you know? And, uh, and so it's kind of like, if, you know, the, the, the Marvel Universe, the dude that has the bedazzled glove, and like once he gets to that, that glove, then like, he, he rules everything. It's the same concept. It's the one ring that rules all the other rings. And uh, <laughs> I love calling the bedazzled glove. It's, sorry. Anyway, so... Uh, uh, but he gets this one ring, and he's, he's enamored with this thing. Well, Smeagol sees it, and he's like, hey, won't you give me that ring? And Eagle says, no, I'm not going to give you the ring. He's like, it's my birthday, give me the ring. And Eagle says, I've already got you another gift. I'm not getting you this, give me this ring. And so Smeagol sees that ring, and he desires it above all else. And so what he does is he strangles his cousin and best friend Eagle, Kills him and takes the ring from him and hides the body of honor in front of him. And for the rest of Smeagol turned Gollum's life, that act haunted him for the rest of his days. Now, why do I tell you that? One, because it's Lord of the Rings, Lord, it's great. But also, why do I tell you that? Because here in First Kings, this is really, really interesting, we run into that exact same scene. Like, we literally run into the exact same scene with Ahab. So, so up until this point, we've witnessed the worst of Ahab. Like, we, we've, seen, like we've seen Ahab, man, this dude is not that great. Heading into this chapter, he's repeatedly proven that he is anti-God, that he's, he's anti-Yahweh, that he is he's not going to worship him, he's not going to lead the people to worship him. And uh, he married this awful woman named Jezebel, and so we've seen this dude's not a great guy. But... Also, up to this point, we have never seen or seen the text accuse Ahab of any brutality or oppression against his own people. 
We haven't seen that up until this point in the text. But then we reach chapter 21, and we see, oh, Ahab's character is even worse than we thought. Because here's where he turns to oppressing his own people to gain what he wants. And so the question that governs this text for us is, is there any hope for a person who acts upon their worst impulses? Is there any hope for a person who acts upon their worst impulses? Or, better question for us in this room is this. Is there any hope for sinners before a holy God? So let's look at the text together. In chapter 21, starting in verse 1. Some time passed after these events. Uh, so these events are basically the, the ones of uh, chapter, chapter 20. Uh, so when there was the, the big battle with Ben-Hadad and... and uh, so that, that big battle we talked about last week. So Naboth, the Jezreelite, had a vineyard. It was in Jezreel, next to the palace of King Ahab of Samaria. So he had a second. So he had Samaria, but then you had Jezreel, which is another city, which is about twenty miles away. And and King Ahab had a like a winter home, uh, another estate there, and there was a, a vineyard right next door to his palace that he wanted. And so, uh, so they, Naboth, a Jezreelite, had a vineyard, and it was in Jezreel next to the palace of King Ahab of Samaria. So Ahab spoke to Naboth, saying, Give me your vineyard, so I can have it for a vegetable garden, since it's right next to my palace. I will give you a better vineyard in its place, or if you prefer, I will give you its value in silver. But Naboth said to Ahab, I will never give you my father's inheritance. So Ahab went to his palace resentful and angry because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had told him. He had said, uh, he had said, I will not give you my father's inheritance. And he laid down on his bed, turned his face away, and didn't eat any food. Then his wife Jezebel came to him and said, why are you so upset that you refuse to eat? Because I spoke to Naboth, the Jezreelite replied, I told him, give me your vineyard for silver, or if you wish, I'll give you a vineyard in its place. But he said, I will give you my vineyard. Then his wife Jezebel said to him, now exercise your royal power over Israel. Get up, eat some food, be happy. For I'll give you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. Let's pray, and we'll dig into this word together. So Father, I come before you, thank you. Just for this time, this text, this opportunity to be happy here for you. So I pray that you would speak to us, open our hearts, open our minds to hear what you want to say to us this morning. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, uh, good times are happening here. So he had his second estate up in Jezreel. And uh, the vineyard's right next to it. He wants this thing. And so he shows up. It's kind of interesting. Uh, he shows up to, to Naboth, and he says, hey man, give me this vineyard, and if you want, I'll either pay you for it, or I'll give you a better one in its place. Well, Naboth says, no, I'm not giving this land to you. Why? Well, land was deeply important. One, he liked his property, but two, Land was it's, it's really difficult. It's annoying. If, you, if you're going to move and you're like, there's not a big reason to move, you're just moving to make a profit. But it is annoying to pack up on your stuff. Anyways, so he is, he's, he's like, no, I don't, want this, I don't want to give away this land. Land is deeply important to Israelites. Deeply, deeply important to Israelites. Why? What was God's main promise 
to his people. I'm going to give you land. I'm going to give you a land. And then once they got to the promised land, God split that land up by clans or by, by tribes. And so the, the land of the, the people of Dan went here, the people of Manasseh went here, the people of Ephraim went here, the people of Judah went here. Like it was where you live was defined by your lineage. And so when they crossed over to the promised land, God said, this is the land I've been giving you. This is the land I've been promising your people, the land that I promised to your forefather Abraham. This is yours. And then they crossed over. And then they said, okay, now in your, in your people group, this land is the one that's reserved for the family of the Westerners. This one is the panda, the one that's reserved for the Davises. This is the one that's reserved for the Millers. And so God is setting this up for generations of this is the family land. And in Leviticus 25, in Leviticus 25, God said, do not sell your property. That's why there was a thing called the year of Jubilee. Every seven years, if you sold your land because you desperately needed the money for whatever reason, every seven years, God set up a year of Jubilee to give people back their ancestral land. Land was deeply important. And Naboth is an Israelite. And so God said, he knew, God said, don't sell your land. Don't give away your land, especially if someone like Ahab. And so... When Ahab came to him and said, hey, give me your land, I'll give you something better, Naboth's like, no. Because this isn't just property that I bought from P.R. Horton. This is my family's land. That's what this is. And so he's holding on to this because it is from the promise of God. That's why he has his property. It's his vineyard. It was his dad's vineyard. It was his grandfather's vineyard. That's his. And Ahab's coming to him. To try to take it. And so this is vital for these guys. But also, if he did agree to this, to get a better vineyard or to get silver for a place of it, then he becomes dependent upon King Ahab. Because the land that he now has was given to him from the king. And if the king wants to take it back at any point, boom, his land. He becomes the king's dependent. So there's an application to this because if you are wanting to make a change, whether you're in leadership or not, if you're wanting to make a change or you want to do something that others may not agree with or they're not ready for or they understand rightly that you can't understand that this is just a bad idea and you put this, this plan out there and people don't go along with it, immediately there's a couple options there's three options that you can take at that point so say hey, we're going to make a change here whether it's in our church in our family at work we're like man we're going to we're going to make this change and people start resisting this change there's three options that you you encounter at that point the first one is this is you can respond in humility and saying okay let me take a step back and assess are these people resisting me because what I'm suggesting is really a bad idea or not? And so you can take, you can cause, like it can cause you to stop and just consider what's happening for me. Take the path of humility that maybe you're wrong in this situation. The second option is this. You heart your heart. You say, I'm the one in charge. We're doing this anyway. And I'm going to step on whoever I need to step on to make this happen. And we have all seen that take place, whether it's at home or at work or whatever. We've all seen that happen, and it never ends up well, usually. Or the third option is this. You do nothing, and you go home, 
and you sulk about it, and you just kind of bury it down. That's kind of the third option of what you can do if people insist what you want to do. Well, Ahab takes the third option. Look at verse 4. So Ahab went to his palace resentful and angry because Naboth the Jesuit had told him, or because of what he had told him. He had said, I will not give you my ancestors' inheritance. And he laid down on his bed, he turned his face away, and he didn't eat any food. I, 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 that's, I don't know, I just think that's really comical, okay? Uh, and it's fun, I'm just not going to, I see my kids get talking. If you don't give me this, I'll never eat again. It'd be cheaper for me, that's fine, okay? But then his wife comes in, Jezebel, verse 5. His wife comes in and says to him, why are you so upset that you refuse to eat? So here's the thing, credit to Jezebel. She's a horrible person. The Bible is very clear to let us know that. That's why, like, several weeks ago, I was talking about, like, if you look at, we're looking at naming our kid, we're like, hey, where's Jezebel in the name rankings? Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's like number 26,000 on the list of people being there. Because of her, because of this woman. That's why Jezebel's so, so low on the list. But credit to her, she comes in, and I don't know if she just loves her husband, or if she just loves being a manipulator. I don't know what it is. But she comes to him like a nice, loving wife. She sees him pouting. She's like, honey, what's going on? Do you need a hug? Okay, she comes to him. And she says, why are you so upset that you refuse to eat? And he says, because I spoke to Naboth the Jesuit, I told him, give me your vineyard for silver, or if you wish, I'll give you something else, a vineyard in this place. But he said, I will give you my vineyard. Well, then she said, get up and act like a man. But look, that's what she said. She said, you are a little weakling here. You need to get up and act like a man. Now, exercise your royal power over Israel. Get up, eat some food, and be happy. Exercise your royal power over Israel. She is tapping into the ridiculous idea that many people in leadership believe is the case. It's called absolutism. It means if you are the one who's in charge, that you're in charge and everyone else who's under you exists to serve you. That's called absolutism. Like, I am here, and whatever I say goes. And she's like tapping into this. And you're the king. If you want that land, go take it. And so she says, listen, get up, eat some food, and be happy. I'll handle this. I'll give you that vineyard. I'll give you the vineyard of Naboth and the Israelites. No one should be able to question you. I'll see to it that that happens. So here's a conspiracy. You want a real conspiracy? Here it is, verse 8. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal. And she sent the letters to the elders and nobles who lived with Naboth in his city. In the letters she wrote, Proclaim a fast and seat Naboth at the head of the, head of the people. Then seat two wicked men opposite him and have them testify against him, saying, You have cursed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. So, did you catch that? She wrote a letter to other officials, said, Seat two people by this dude at a banquet, have two people, uh, those two people are going to be instructed to blame him and say he cursed God and he cursed the king because that will incur the death penalty, which means everyone needs to stone up. And so it's in a letter. And so why did she pick two? Because that was the minimum number of witnesses in a court trial to be able to convict someone. 
So the men in the city, the elders and nobles who lived in the city, did as Jezebel had sent the word to them, just as it was written in the letter she had sent them. They proclaimed the fast and seated Naboth at the head of the people. The two wicked men came in and sat opposite him. Then the wicked men testified against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth has cursed God and the king. So they took him outside the city, stoned him to death with stones. Naboth paid a heavy price for his obedience to God's word in this moment. Then they sent word to Jezebel and said, Naboth has been stoned to death. When Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned to death, she said to Ahab, Get up and take possession of the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, who refused to give it to you for silver, since Naboth isn't alive, but dead. But when Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, he got up to go down to the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, to take possession of it. Pretty wicked woman, pretty wicked conspiracy. Basically, this guy won't give you his property, so you kill him to take his property. Now, before we look at this text and kind of at arm's length, before we look at this and think, wow, she's awful, I could never be like her. She's awful, I'm glad people aren't like her. I want you to consider something. Because not only did Ahab and Jezebel act in this manner, but this mirrors actually someone else who's considered God's own heart, had God's own heart, who acted in this exact same way. Look, what happened here? She wanted something, or she may have wanted something, but the righteous person said no. And so they wrote a letter to take care of the situation, to kill the righteous person. And then after that person was dead, and they received a letter back, and said, this person's dead. It said that the king went to take possession of the thing that they wanted. What's that sound like? David. King David. Because what happened? He saw a beautiful woman named Bathsheba, who was a righteous man's wife. And she didn't have any choice in the matter, because he was the king. And he said, bring her to me. And so she went. And when she became pregnant after that night together, he tried to cover things up. So he tried to get the righteous man to come and be with his wife, but all of his men were back in battle, so he refused to go. And so then David wrote a letter to Joab and says, kill him, put him at the front of the lines, and have the people back away so that way he'll die. And then when Joab when he saw it happen, he wrote a letter back to David and said, he's dead. And so then David, what did David do? He went and grabbed the thing he wanted, Bathsheba, and brought her into his house. And so there's a lesson here, I think, for you and me, and that even the most righteous person in this room, the person who has the deepest connection with God, is capable of doing incredibly evil things. Even the most righteous person is capable of sinning in a very great manner. And so before we look at this text at arm's length, we should consider what the text is telling us, what the scriptures tell us, and that all people are capable, and all people are not just capable, but are sinners before a holy God. Because even King David, the righteous man, was sinful in such a great manner like this. And so let's go on, look at verse 17. Then the word of the Lord came to, check this out, who's back? Look who's back. 
came to Elijah the Tishbite. So I guess he like came back and like did a second second half ministry kind of thing. So he came back to town. He's back in the ministry, and he shows up. The word of the Lord comes to him, and what does he tell him to do? You let them know. He's telling them locations again. He's in tune with God again, and now God's telling him to go here, and so now he's going to do it again. It's kind of kind of a cool cool story for him. Anyways, so he's back on the back on the horse. Get up and go meet King Ahab of Israel, who's in Samaria. He's in Naboth's vineyard. It's not Ahab's vineyard now, it's still Naboth's vineyard. He's in Naboth's vineyard, where he has gone to take possession of it. Tell him, this is what the Lord says. Have you murdered and also taken possession? Then tell him, this is what the Lord says. In the place where dogs licked up Naboth's blood, the dogs will also lick up your blood. Great. It's a great picture. I love it. Like, it's like, this is justice. This is the ultimate thing of life. Man, because here's the thing. Dogs were not like, you didn't have like a cute little dachshund running around. Like, that's not what it was. Like, dogs, like, if you, like they were mutts that lived outside. It wasn't like a, your pet. They were like wild dogs. And, and they lived in cities and they were dirty. And, uh, and so that was a, the pinnacle of the pinnacle of like the wrath from God, or um, God is like the people and God are demonstrating this person's an evil person, but that person to be left out their body, be left outside for dogs to lick up. Uh, that's a very bad omen, I think, for that person. And uh, and so he says, "Listen, you did it, Naboth. Well, I'm coming for you." But twenty, this is just so great. This is just their relationship. Ahab and Elijah's relationship. Check this out. So he shows up, Elijah shows up, and here's Ahab's response to this dude, who's been out of the ministry, he's been out of town for a while, and he comes back in town, and here's how he responds to it when he first sees him. It's not, what's up, man? It's, so my enemy, you found me, have you? I love it, it's so great. And he replied, I have found you because you devoted yourself to do what is evil in the Lord's sight. This is what the Lord says, I am about to bring disaster on you and will eradicate your descendants. I will wipe out all of Ahab's males, both slave and free, in Israel. I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, son of Nebat. Remember him? He was the guy who followed Solomon. And uh, I will make your house like his house, where they were all killed. And like the house of Basha, son of Ahijah, who's the guy who followed Jeroboam. His whole house is cut off. Because you angered me, and caused Israel to sin. And the Lord also speaks of Jezebel. I'm not just coming for you, I'm coming for your wife as well. The dogs will eat Jezebel in the plot of land at Jezreel. Anyone who belongs to Ahab and dies in the city, the dogs will eat. And anyone who dies in the field, the birds will eat. No one is going to have a peaceful end of their lives. No one is going to have a Jewish burial. Everyone is going to have this brutal ending. And here's the author's commentary. The guy who wrote the book of 1 Kings. Here's what he says in verse 25. Still, there was no one like Ahab who devoted himself to do what was evil in the Lord's sight, because his wife Jezebel incited him. He committed the most detestable acts following idols as the Amorites had, whom the Lord had dispossessed before the Israelites. So here's the question. After looking at this text, this conspiracy carried out, and the judgment of God placed upon Ahab and Jezebel, the question that governs is this. 
Is there any hope for a person who has acted upon their worst impulses? Is there any hope for sinners before a holy God? If you could fill in the blank of what sin is the big one in your life, or that you've seen take place, or that you can imagine, you fill in the blank there. And there's a the question, is there any hope for the person who has lived in that way? This is a, when I first read this, I remember just reading through this book, um, and I got to this last part here in verse 27, and I remember reading it and thinking, I don't like that. Look what it says with him. When Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes, put sackcloth over his body, and fasted. And he laid down in sackcloth and walked around and subdued. You know what he just did? Repented. He just admitted. He just admitted that he'd done wrong. And he knew God's judgment was coming for him. And he recognized, man, I'm in a lot of problems. I'm in a lot of trouble here. And so he responded in a way to humble himself. Just like if you read the book of Jonah, the king of Nineveh. And check this out. Look at verse 28. This is the verse that I read. I'm like, or verse 28, 29. I'm like, I don't like that. Look what it says. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? And look at this reversal. I will not bring the disaster in his lifetime. Because he has humbled himself before me. I will bring the disaster on his house during the son's lifetime. The most crazy verses that we've read in 1 Kings right here. Because what have we demonstrated about Ahab from the beginning that we, when we introduced ourselves to him to this point? That Ahab is awful. That's what we've learned about Ahab. He and his wife are awful. They disobey God. They rebel against him. They're evil towards his people. They're like, they're just, they're, it's been bad, okay? It's been bad for him. But at this point, leading up to this point, he has just committed the worst of the worst. Oppression against his own people. Murdering a man to gain his property. The worst of the worst of his acts. And after this, he hears judgments coming. And what does he do? Humbles himself before God. And immediately, God turns. He says, okay. Have you seen how he humbled himself? I'm not going to bring the disaster like I told him I would. I'm not going to bring the disaster like I told him I would. Man, pay attention here to how little of a step Ahab had to take to find God's mercy. That's, that's amazing to me because oftentimes, like, if we're outside of the church or if we're, we're like, uh, we're, we're just not as familiar with the gospel, most commonly we think that I can't come to church uh, because because I'm, I'm too bad, or Jesus can't save me because I've done a lot of bad things in my life, or I've had a bad history in my life, or I've had an addiction, or I've had an affair, or I've had these things, or the church doesn't need me or want me. I shouldn't be in there because. Because I've, I've been a bad person. 
and we think, man, there's a certain level of things that I've got to do in order to make God love me again, or to get God on my side again, or for me to find God's mercy again. And so we think, man, there, most of us, we're like, man, there's this line, and if there's, a, there's this line, and if I do enough good stuff, then God's going to love me. And if I don't, like, if I do enough of bad stuff, too much bad stuff, then God's not going to love me anymore. And so there's like, we're always trying to follow this line. I'm like, maybe I'm doing enough good stuff now to get God to be back in my team again. So we think, man, I'm not going to cuss anymore. I'm going to try to go to church a lot this month. And uh, I'm not going to yell at my kids this week. Um, I'm going to try to, to stop looking at porn this week. And I'm, like, we start to walk through these number of things. Like, I'm going to follow these steps. And then I'm going to get right with God by following these steps because God's going to love me at that point. What this just told us, so all of that's a lot. What God desires is not your perfection. What God desires is your repentance, your heart. That's what this text just said. Look at the step that it had took. He humbled himself. And he said, God, I messed up. And at that point, God turned everything. <laughs> Instead of coming with mercy, I'll be here. That's amazing. So the question for you today is have you turned in homeless? Have you admitted that man, I've messed up and I need your mercy, God? And the second you repent in that manner, guess what happens? God comes to you with mercy. He says, I'm here. I'm here with you. It's amazing. And so that's an awesome way for this to end for you and me. Because we can think, man, I'm a sinner. I'm a great sinner. I mean, I've killed a dude for his property. Someone here may have. I don't know. Don't tell me you have. But the mercy of God is wide enough to cover even the greatest of sins that we can commit. Isn't that amazing? And that's a great message for you and me. It's less of a great message for Naboth in this story, I'll be honest. It's less of a great message for that dude. Why? Because what it sounds like we're saying is that Ahab just killed this dude for his land, stole the land, and then told God, I'm sorry. And so then God said, okay, it's fine. We'll kind of move on. And so that's kind of what it feels like we're saying right now. It's totally like, so here's the, here's, the, here's the issue. Here's the issue that's happening in my heart, and I guess I'm reading this text, and then many of our hearts in this room. Is we want Jesus to suffer and die and offer forgiveness for my sins. But I want the Ahabs of the world to suffer for their sins. That's, that's what's happening to me. And here in me is a desire for justice. We want the guilty person to bear the weight or the responsibility for their sins, just not me personally. That's what we want. Now here's the thing. God agrees with you. God agrees with you that someone should pay for sins. He totally agrees with you that someone should pay for justice system. You and him are on the same page. And what we learn through the gospel of Jesus Christ, and this isn't bad, I'm going to explain it. But what we learn through the gospel of Jesus Christ is that someone did. Let me explain that. 
before you tune me out. Because there's a couple things that go into this situation. But you have the mercy of God at work, you have the grace of God at work, you have the justice of God, the wrath of God at work in this play. And he promises multiple things for us. He promises justice. He promises uh, all things will be all things said and become untrue. He promises to bring the one who brings justice. He promises his various things. And in the gospel of Jesus Christ, also what we learn is that every person ever who repents and believes that Jesus is Lord, the wrath of God that was reserved for them is transferred to Jesus on the cross. We understand that. Like, that's, like, that, is, like that is set in stone. Every person who repents, including Ahab, the wrath of God that was reserved for that person is transferred through Jesus on the cross upon their repentance and belief in Jesus. There's room on the cross for every person. And we, like that's said, you can't get around that. His death satisfies the punishment set for them and leaves the believer justified or acquitted in the, in the, in the court of heaven. That doesn't mean there's not earthly consequences, and there should be. Like Ahab, in this situation, he should face earthly penalties. But in the heavens, if he believes in Jesus, repents of his sin, then the wrath reserved for his sin is transferred to Jesus on the cross. And Jesus says, I'll pay for that. I'll pay for that. Just so that in the court of heaven, what that means is that person is then justified or is set free from their sin. They're acquitted because Jesus took the penalty in their place. And that is good news for sinners like you and me. But there's a other side of the coin here. There's another side of the coin here because every person who does not believe in Jesus, the wrath of God remains on him and they will one day face God the judge without any covering of mercy from the cross. And so justice is coming. It's either you're going to face it for eternity or Jesus faced it on the cross. That is, that is true. So for us who are left in this situation, who are left with a sour taste from this, because we think often, like, man, this person hurt me. They need to bear the penalty for this. Earthly-wise, yes. Heavenly-wise, depends on their faith. And so if that leaves you with a sour taste in your mouth, there are three things I want you to hear. The first one is this, and I'm not diminishing any hurt that's happened to you, or the greatness of any hurt that's happened to you, but the text is explicit in telling us this. We need to remember our own sins, and the forgiveness and the mercy that was offered to us. So Jesus says, at the end of the Lord's Prayer, he says, that he says, forgive us our debts. And we have also forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive others their offenses, your heavenly Father will forgive you as well. But if you don't forgive others, your Father will not forgive your offenses. And so the second thing based on that is this. That the cross of Jesus Christ opens us up to forgive. Like in your desire for another person to pay for what they did to you, look to the cross. The cross opens things up for us. Why? We want someone to pay for what they did. 
And the cross says, someone did. Someone did pay for that. Jesus' sufferings happened. And so what the text tells us is to look at Jesus' sufferings and be satisfied with them. Jesus paid. And so that cross then opened us up to then be able to move forward in forgiveness. And I'm not diminishing what happened. Forgiveness does not mean trust. Forgiveness does not mean become best buddies. It doesn't even mean ever see that person again. But forgiveness does mean release that person from the hurt that you want to happen. Listen again to what Jesus says. For if you forgive others your, their offenses, your heavenly Father will forgive you as well. But if you don't forgive others, your Father will not forgive you your offenses. And here's where it comes to trust. Here's where it comes to trust. Listen to this. God, in His infinite wisdom, and in His infinite goodness, sees these issues. He knows what's happening in your life. He knows the hurts that you've caused and the ones that have been done to you. He sees these things and in some way can make all things work together for the good of those who love God. They are called according to His purpose. And so what He says in this moment for you and me, when we're looking at the Ahams of the world, whether we are him or he's been evil towards us, what God says is this, look to Jesus and what he did on the cross and trust me, I will bring justice. And so let's pray.